Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 with me this morning as we step into a new chapter of the book of Acts. If you found Acts chapter 3 verse 1, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Now it says this in Acts chapter 3. Starting in verse number one, it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones were received strength. So he, leaping, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Father, this morning, thank you for the many blessings you've bestowed on us already through this service, our fellowship time together, our, our Sunday school time, our music, Father, time with our children. We just thank you for, for just blessing us with your presence. I thank you for that music, especially this morning, those songs that so spoke to my heart that really prepared my heart and mind for the worship of you through your word. Now, Father, as we approach your throne of grace through your word, I ask this of you that you make very little of me and very much of you that we may see you in all of your glory this morning. This we pray in the precious name of the word, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our journey through Acts has brought us to the daily lives of the believers following the conversion of 3,000 folks who come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Peter, if you remember, in the second chapter had just preached the first post-resurrection sermon. The crowd, they had been drawn together to hear the sermon by those miraculous signs that came with the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. That sound of the mighty wind and, and the tongues of uh, like fire of the Holy Spirit coming in and them speaking in languages that they did not know but the others who had gathered could understand from every corner of the region. Uh, when Peter had preached, he had preached the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus Christ that day. Just in the preaching of the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And it was there that we see the church in, in Mass started. Now, what did the church look like? We remember back in, in Acts chapter 2, as, we, as we're coming out of it, it told us a little bit about what it looked like. It gave us a glimpse in the 46th and 47th verse when it said they were all of one accord. They were unified together. They, they ate together in each other's homes. They, they praised God. They found favor with all the people. And it says at the end of the day, the Lord added to their number daily. That's how it ended that second chapter. The Lord adding to their number daily. We see the church being unified around this gospel of Jesus Christ because it also told us in that second uh, chapter that they continued steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles. And what was the doctrine of the apostles? <laughs> Death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They continued. They wrapped their arms around that, and that was their focal point. And, and what were the apostles doing there this time? What were the apostles doing? <laughs> they were continuing the work that Jesus had begun. Remember, that's what he's told them to do. He said, when I leave, you're going to continue that which I had done. And the Holy Spirit's going to come to empower you to accomplish that. They were continuing that work. And it even tells us there in the, in the 43rd chapter of that second, or 43rd verse of that second chapter, that there were many wonders and, and there were many signs, it says, that were being done through those apostles. Many of those. God was working through those apostles and wonders and signs, uh, proving that they were his representatives, that they were there doing his work. The same method that God used to draw those folks to Peter to hear that sermon, those 3,000 that have been saved, that same method method he continued to use in the ministry of the apostles to, to draw people, to draw people to hear the message. You know, that's exactly where we find ourselves in this third chapter. It's exactly where we find ourselves. So let's look together then at this third chapter, this very first part of the third chapter. And let's look at a met need confirms the word. A met need confirms the word. The first thing I notice as I read this passage, as I look at the passage, the very first thing that I notice in this passage is who is involved. Who is involved? It's always important to get an understanding of who's involved so you can wrap your head around the context of the, of the message. And the first characters, it's very obvious, the first characters that you see there are this, this Peter and John. This Peter and John. Peter and John, if you remember, they're the disciples of Christ. They're also apostles because they have seen the, the living Savior after he has risen from the dead. And that's what gives them that apostleship. That's what gives them that apostleship. They've, they've been with Jesus throughout his ministry. They, they've seen Jesus as he walked among the people and, and doing miraculous things and feeding those and healing others and meeting needs and, and speaking of this coming kingdom of heaven. They've spent time with him at the table. They've spent time with him on the mountain. They've spent time with him in the garden. They've, they've been out in the desert with him. They've, they've been in boats and, and had him come rescue him in the middle of the sea. They, they've been with this Jesus. They've, they've spent time with him. But they're also part of the inner circle, remember. See, these two are important. I won't, I won't say there's any hierarchy in the discipleship, but there seems to be. <laughs> there seems to be because there was this inner circle. If you remember, whenever Jesus would draw away from even the 12, and he would go away and want to take someone with him, who did he always take with him? Peter, James, and John. So they were two of the three of the inner circle. So they had this closeness, this closeness. Matter of fact, John often referred to himself in his writings as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Disciple who Jesus loved. Peter had a special relationship with Jesus. He was restored on the seashore after Jesus rose from the dead and he had denied Christ three times during his trials. There was, there was a special relationship. Peter, Peter and John, they had become a team, as you notice, in, in the discipleship. Often, even in the, the uh, speaking of Jesus and, and back in the, the, the New Testament in the beginning, whenever you're running through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see all the disciples doing things, but then you see these couplets. And, and Peter and John were often part of these couplets at Jesus' instruction. If you remember, I believe it's Luke 5, somewhere about the first 7, 8, 10 verses up in, up in the front of Luke 5. He actually... Uh, says there, whenever he's writing in Luke, he says this, Peter and John, and James, because James was John's brother, were in the fishing business together. So even before it started as a discipleship ministry together, it, it has started in business together. Some of you own businesses. You know how difficult it is to have partners. 
But you also know that having a partner, you have to kind of get to know each other a little bit. You, you have to have this oneness. So it started even before they became uh, disciples. In, in Luke 22, I believe it is. In Luke 22, they're the two that Jesus assigns to go and prepare the Passover meal before they show up in the upper room to eat. It's these two that Jesus sends ahead. Speaking of that Passover time and the end of Jesus' life, they're also the only two that followed Jesus from house to house to house when he was on trial. It's the only two that were mentioned that, that followed him in the trials to, to see him stand before Caiaphas and the others. They followed at a distance, but they looked on. You can find that in John. I think it's about the 17th or 18th chapter. Also in the book of John, if you remember, ladies showed up at the tomb to see what is going on with this Jesus. They find the stone had been rolled away and in wonderment and amazement, they rush back to the disciples and say, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. Jesus is not in the grave. <laughs> Who were the two that had a foot race to the open tomb? Peter and John. Matter of fact, John says that he was the one that Jesus loved and it must have given him a little extra strength because he outran Peter there, if you remember. <laughs> so you see these two guys together in ministry and in love of Jesus Christ together and doing things together all the way back from before they were disciples up through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see them together. And all through the book of Acts, you're going to still see them together as a ministry team. You always see Peter Peter seems to be the one that's up front and preaching. He's always the one that's up front and preaching. He seems to be the leader of the two teams. But then, but then there's John. John, as you kind of look through the book of Acts, seems to just be along for the ride. But we know enough about John to know that that's not his nature. That's not his nature at all. John and his brother James had a nickname. Do you remember what it was? Sons of Thunder. Why would you name someone the son of thunder that stays in the background all the time? Any idea? There's not a reason. They were the sons of thunder because they were up front thundering. They wanted to be in the center of things. John was outspoken and brash. He wanted to be in the limelight. Yet, when you see these two together, when you see these two together, it's Peter who is speaking out. He's a spokesperson. That, that helps me understand that God has a place and a time for every one of his children. He also has an opportunity for every one of his children. And he has a task for every one of his children. There is an, a task and an ability that's given to each of you. By the Holy Spirit, by God. For some, it's to be the spokesperson. For some, it's to be up front teaching the class, preaching, singing, leading the troop. For others, it's to be support. It's to be in the background. But there is no difference in God's eyes in your worthiness in those two places. Peter, John, they were equally loved by God, equally used by God. Here's what I also know. It often takes God changing who we were to become what he has planned for us, for us to be all that God wants us to be. We can't remain who we were. We can't even remain who we were in nature after we come to know Jesus Christ. God makes us a new creation. A new creation. 
Peter had to be changed from the one who wanted to take the bull by the horns, remember, and, and just move forward and suffer the consequences later. He had to be changed from that to the one that was controlled, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He had to yield that let's move forward and figure it out later attitude and be yielding to this Holy Spirit in his life. John, John had to be changed from the one who desired, if you remember, to sit at the right hand of Jesus, to to take the place of prominence. He had to be changed from, from wanting the place of prominence next to Jesus Christ on the throne in heaven to a support person for Peter. That's a big change. That's a big change. His whole life had to be rearranged, even the nature of his life. See, we must be willing. We must be willing to allow God to work in our lives to change us, to change us from who we are to who He desires us to be. See the excuse, well, that's just the way I am. You know what you're really saying when you say that? Instead of being willing to change to what God desires for you to be, do you say, hey, I am what I am? You know what you're really saying? God, I don't want to be. I don't want to be what you want me to be. That's what you're saying. The excuse that, hey, this is the way God made me. <laughs> you know what you're saying to God? <laughs> God, I like what I am. <laughs> I like what I am and I don't want to change. You know, any excuse, any excuse we give God to remain who we are instead of becoming who he desires us to be has a label. It has a name. You know what it is? Sin. See, you can be saved and headed to a place called heaven and walking in sin because you tell God, I can't do that. I don't want to be that. I'm built this way. This is what I desire to do. It's called sin. It's telling God that you know what is best. It's saying, we're the one in charge, God. As a matter of fact, God, we're our own God. We'll call you when we need you. You know when we normally need God? When our way falls apart around us and the walls of our life are laying crumbled at our feet. That's when we normally need God. But if we look at Peter and we look at John and we take any example from Peter and John from this... (laughs) It's the change that God worked in them. The change that God worked in. And and if Peter and John had decided, if they decided that they knew best, that they knew best what was best for them, they would have never encountered the second character in this story. And who's the second character? It tells us there in that second verse, it says the second character is this certain man. Certain man. Boy, he's got to be important. His name's not even given to us. You know why? His name's not important. That's why his name's not given to us. What is important about him is given to us because it goes on to say that he was lame from his mother's womb. Now to us, we look at that and it doesn't mean a whole lot. But but think about it for a minute. He's been lame since his, his birth, since his mother's womb. We'll find out over in chapter 4, I think it is. He's somewhere in the age of 40 at this particular time. That means he's, he's kind of had what you could say was, was a difficult life. He came out of the womb lame, which means he didn't have an accident that caused his lameness. He wasn't in a chariot wreck or fell off a horse. He didn't get sick that caused his lameness. Uh, no, he was lame from the day that he was born, which meant he had never known what it was 
to stand up or walk like a normal person. That to me would be a pretty difficult life, wouldn't it you? Wouldn't it you? To us, that doesn't mean much. To us, we think about it, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Okay, we've got a guy who's lame from birth, and, and okay, he, I feel sorry for him, but, but he's lame. In that culture, it meant a whole lot more. It meant a whole lot more in that culture. You see, physical deformity, lameness, sickness, uh, disease in the in life of those in that particular time was seen by the religious community as a sin problem, if you remember. Not just a physical problem. When you were blind, deaf, lame, everybody thought that you had done something. There had been some problem in your life that had caused it. As a matter of fact, in John 9, just to prove it to you, in John 9... At the very start of John 9, in the first couple of verses, it says this. Now, as Jesus passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man who was blind from birth. So here's another guy (laughs) from the mother's womb had never seen a thing, and he's sitting there. Jesus passes by, and he sees him. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, saying, Rabbi, in other words, teacher, says, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See the culture? Culture's way different than it is for us. We see a person that has a physical deformity in their life from the womb. What do we think? I wonder what protein was missing, or I wonder what. When they saw a blind man or they saw a lame man that from birth, they thought, who sinned? Was it that guy? Or was it his parents? See the difference in the concepts and. In their world to ours, <laughs> they linked all suffering to sin against God. That was the link. And while sin, yes, does cause suffering, not all suffering is caused by sin. Did you hear that? <laughs> while sin does cause suffering, Not all suffering is caused by sin. How do we know that? That John 9 passage. How does Jesus answer him? Verse number 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He could have stopped right there and answered the question. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So the flip side of that, if neither one of them sinned, what's he saying about the guy's blindness? Wasn't caused by the sin. He goes on to say what it was caused for. He says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Sometimes we suffer the things we suffer, not because of sin in our life, but so that God can be glorified in our life. Sometimes we're falling on our face asking God to take something away that he's going to use to bless the world by seeing his glory through it. And here sat this lame man. So in Acts 3.2 says he was lame from the mother's womb. They'd have immediately thought that there was a presence of sin that had, had caused this. Here we have a lame man that, that everyone thought was lame because of sin. And he's being carried. He's being carried, it says, to, to a specific place to beg alms. So the story then moves from those who were involved, Peter, John, and a certain man, and it moves to where they were involved at. Notice in verse 1, it tells us that Peter and John were headed to the temple at the ninth hour. Boy, there's a lot in that, but we're just going to brief over it today. It had been their custom, apparently, to go to the temple to worship at the prescribed hours of the day. And there were multiple hours every day that they were to go. This particular one happened to be the ninth hour. Now, (laughs) 
now that they'd had this better understanding of who God was because of the upper room experience, because the preaching of the gospel and three, seeing 3,000 saved, now that they were headed to the temple, I'm pretty sure they headed there with a whole different attitude. But before they really understood who this God was and before they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure that they approached the temple in a different manner. Now they had a little kick in their step. They had a different understanding. They couldn't wait for these things. And, and, and it says that they, they headed out. It, it had gone for them from before they had to go because it was a prescribed hour to now they, they got to go. It had gone from being a prescribed time to a powerful opportunity. It had gone from being a religious duty to a reverenced worship for them. There was this whole attitude change in their approach to the temple. You know, we in the church today could learn a lot from Peter and John regarding church and attendance in church. We could learn a lot from them. You know, you don't have to go to church. You get to go to church. That's an attitude change. You, you don't come to church to mark it off your list of responsibilities, but you join in with other believers to worship the Almighty God who gave His only begotten Son to die on a cross for your sins. You come to church not for what you can get. You come to church for what you can give. See, you come to church because Jesus came to earth to save you and you want to join in with other like-minded believers in worshiping Him for that. See, in fact, you don't come to church at all. In fact, you are the church. See, you're not coming to church on Sunday. You are the church. You have the opportunity to come together, yes, in a building we call church. But the fact of the matter is, you're the church outside of this building. See, when they approached the building, they approached it in a whole different manner. No longer looking at it as a religious responsibility. They looked at it as an opportunity to be with the rest of the church, joined together, worshiping the Almighty God for what He had done through His Son, Jesus Christ, on their behalf. Notice it says they came at the hour of prayer. <laughs> you know, there's one thing that we need in church that is fastly slipped away in churches. It's something called prayer. Something called prayer. There needs to be more time of togetherness in prayer. That's why we are praying together corporately through thoughts and ideas and themes throughout all the year. So that even as we're outside of the building, still being the church together in spirit, we're praying over the same things as God leads us in that direction. There needs to be more prayer together. Join our voices as we approach the throne of grace together. There needs to be time of praise in prayer. There needs to be time of petition in prayer. There needs to be time of rejoicing in prayer. And there also just needs to be time of quietness together in prayer, listening to the voice of God. Sometimes we get so busy telling God what we want and what we want to do and what we need, we never stop to hear Him say, that's not my plan. Here's my plan. Sometimes we just need to come into the house of God as the church and pray and hear the voice of God speak. Verse 3 tells us that the where, the where for the certain man was the fact that he was laid daily at the gate of the temple. He was laid gaily at, daily at the gate of the temple. And it's kind of interesting because this gate that he was laid at actually has a name and it's called Beautiful. 
When I say the word beautiful, what comes to mind? For me, it's my wife, since someone's going to tell her what I said earlier down here. <laughs> but, but you think of this, this beautiful thing. This, the, the word itself just brings a picture of beauty. I doubt it brings a junk car with trees growing up in the middle of it or any of those things. It's, it's something beautiful. And that's exactly what this gate was. By the fact it was named that, we, we can come to understand it's more than likely the gate that was the choice gate for those entering the temple, for those that wanted to be seen. For those that wanted to come into that temple area. This would have been the gate that most of the people used. That is why the lame man wound up being laid next to that gate. Because remember, he was laid next to the gate to beg alms or money from those who were entering the temple. And it speaks a lot about even how we approach church. <laughs> but, but there's a reason that he wanted to be set by the, the best gate for those, those entering. Because it was thought in that time as it is today. That... That giving to the poor or giving to God gains you favor in God's sight. They thought that to be right with God, they would just show him that they were right and they would throw a few mites, a few pennies into the guy's cup. So what better place for him to sit than where those would feel burdened to give as they went into the temple to prove to God just how righteous that they were. (laughs) And if they wanted to be right in the sight of God they drop a few coins in this cup. So we know who was involved. We know where they were involved at. But let's look at what was inquired of those in this story. As Peter and John approached the gate, the gate beautiful, the lame man, it says there in verse 3, asked for alms. Asked for alms. It's interesting. When you think of the word alms, you think of money. You think of something being given to help someone in need. But it's interesting that Greek word for the word alms. <laughs> the Greek word there for the word alms is actually the word that's best translated compassionateness. Well, that's a big word, isn't it? Compassionateness. See, he was asking them for compassion. For compassion. He desired he desired for that compassion to be given to him, yes, in the form of money, because he had no way to earn an income. But what he was really asking when he said, alms, alms, as they would call out, was he was saying, show me compassion. Show me compassion. Notice how Peter and John responded in the fourth verse. It says, in fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Boy, that seems to be a strange Response to a guy asking for money now, doesn't it? Let me just ask you, don't raise your hand and embarrass yourself. I would embarrass myself right along with you. If you pull up to a stoplight in Wilmington, North Carolina, and there's a person standing there next to it holding a sign that says, homeless, no place to stay. How often do you roll down the window and say, hey, look over here, look right at me? No, most time you start looking to see if traffic's coming because you don't want to lock eyes with them. Most time we ignore the one that's sitting on the street. Dirty, cold. We don't want them to look at us because we don't even want to acknowledge that they're there. Peter and John said, look at us. They wanted his undivided attention and they wanted him to know that he had their undivided attention. Most people who pass by this man, whether they drop money in the cup or not, would not have so much as even glanced at him. They would just have ignored him. 
They would have thrown a few pieces of money in this cup and they'd have moved on to the temple to worship the Almighty God. They would not even paid him an ounce of attention. Sadly to say, we do that every day with people in our life. There are beggars that God sets on the street of our life every day. And we're too busy, even heading to church, to stop and look them in the eye and give them what they're asking for. Compassion. But Peter and John, Peter and John don't do what those religious people are doing heading to the temple. Because the religious people who, who pay him absolutely no attention, who don't even glance away, who don't want to see him so that he doesn't see them, what they're really telling him? You're not worthy of my time or my attention. What they're really telling him? Is this God we're about to go worship? Finds you worthless. Though Peter and John, they said, literally, fix your eyes upon me. And it goes on in verse 4 and says, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Fix your eyes upon me. Lock your gaze. Look at me. It says they gazed intently, not in a gawking way, not, not repulsive at what they saw. They looked at him with eyes of compassion. As I read the story, I can't help but think. I wonder how long, how long it had been since anyone had bothered to look at this lame man with compassion. How long had he sat next to the gate? As it says in verse 2, he was carried and dropped off at the gate every day. How long had he sat at the front door of the church? And not a soul had compassion on him. Not even to look him in the eye. How long had he been made to feel worthless in the sight of man and in the sight of God? How long had he been dumped off like a bag of trash at the gate of the temple? And left till somebody had time to come back and take him home. But Peter and John, they stopped their progress to the temple to worship the Almighty God, to join together with the other. They, they, they stopped their progress to the temple and they looked earnestly at him. They took in what was before him. They saw him as a person, not a problem. You know what they did? They saw him as God sees him. Worthy. Worthy of the love of an almighty God. It would do us good. It would do us good to pause in our daily routine and see the people around us as God sees them. As God sees them. People that are worthy of the love of God. Human beings that are made in the image of God. A soul. A soul encamped in the tent of a physical body that needs a Savior. It would do us good to stop the hustle and bustle of life. Look into the eyes of that man or woman that's sitting there next to us or, or lives in the house next to us or, or works in the cubicle next to us. Look into their eyes and see them as what they are. A creation of God that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for and raised him from the dead that they might have eternal life. It's time we quit throwing a few pennies in the bucket and walking by compassionless. Because that's what that is. You know, it's easy to give to the mission. It's hard to do the mission. 
Christ calls us to do the hard thing, not the easy thing. Even billionaires, billionaires in industries that prove they don't know who Jesus Christ are, give to humanitarian causes. They give out of the wealth built on the backs of satanic things for humanitarian purposes. It's easy to give. It's easy. It's just a check. You'll make more tomorrow. What's difficult is to stop, look into the eyes of one person with compassion. And not pull out your checkbook, but open up your heart. They wanted him to know. They wanted him to know that they cared. And they said, look, look at us. Regard us. Take, take heed of us, he says. And in verse, time, in verse 5, it says, and what his response was, he gave them his full attention. He gave him his full attention. Now, he gave them the full attention in expectation of receiving something from them. But Peter and John knew that the Holy Spirit had a whole other plan. A whole other plan. So we saw who was involved, where were they involved, what was inquired of them. Now, why the encounter? Why the man at the gate? Why this day? It told us in Acts 2.43 that many wonders and signs would be done through the apostles. You're getting ready to look at one of those. One of those. Isn't it amazing how the Bible says something was done and it follows up with a real life example of what was done? And that's what we read. It's a real life example. Peter and John were not headed to the temple that day. They were not headed to the temple that day looking for someone in need. They didn't get up in the house and say, let's go find somebody in need. Peter didn't look at John and say, hey, bring your need bag. We're going to go find somebody in need. No, they didn't get up that morning trying to find a way to prove to God that they trusted him, that they loved him with all their heart. They didn't even get up hoping that they could display God to the world that day. They got up praising God and worshiping God for who he is. And they were headed to the temple to do that corporately with the rest of the believers. They went about their day fully controlled by the Holy Spirit just being Peter and John. That's what they did. They intended to do as they always did, go to the temple to worship God. They were going specifically at the hour of prayer. And here, here, on their way to worship, on their way to worship, as they walked off towards the temple, they had an encounter. They had an encounter. It was not a chance encounter. Didn't happen by accident. No, it implies in the text that, that every day Peter and John did the same routine to go to the temple. It also tells us blatantly in the text that every day that lame man was set at that gate. You can only then put two and two together and say that Peter and John walked through Gate Beautiful past the lame man every day to the temple at least once a day, but more than likely three times a day. Past the same lame man. So what's different about this day? God had an appointment with a certain man. That's the difference. And God showed up in Peter and John. And Peter and John at the gate. <laughs> but here's the strange thing. The appointment was not for the certain lame man. Oddly enough. <laughs> it was not for, because when we get to chapter 4, verse 4, you'll find out this encounter with the lame man led to 5,000 people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. <laughs> Yes, he met the lame man face to face. 5,000 people came to know Jesus because of it. See, the encounter wasn't about the lame man. Acts 3.6 tells us how Peter takes a request of this physical need and gets to the heart of the matter, gets to the heart of the matter, which is spiritual. 
He gets right to the spiritual application very quickly. It says in verse 3, 6, silver and gold I do not have. You know, he wasn't lying. We know that because if you look back at the other text, it tells us in uh, Acts 2.45, I think it is, somewhere back there, that they took everything that they owned, they sold it, and they gave it to the poor. That was their custom. That was their custom as the body of Christ, as the church, to take all their possessions, those extra things, the things that, that God had blessed them with, everything they had, and they sold it, and they met the needs of the poor. So when Peter and John stood before him and said, you know, one thing that you're asking for, I know you want money, but there's one thing I don't have, I ain't got no cash. I ain't got no money. I, had, I don't have a thing. <laughs> but it also says in verse 6 of chapter 3, but what I do have, I give to you. The question is, what did he have? <laughs> what did he have that he was going to give to him? Peter had been present in that upper room experience when the Holy Spirit had showed up. He had been present when he had filled uh, them with, with power. We see that represented whenever he gets up and preaches at, with, with power and people respond. He has within him an understanding of what God would have him do because of that Holy Spirit. He has within him the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit. So what was the outcome? What was the outcome of this encounter? As, as, as they bump into this man and he says, I don't have any money to give you, but I'm going to give you everything that I've got. What was the outcome? The outcome was the exemplification of, of Christ. The example of Christ. Look at verse 6 again. In verse 6, the, second, or the third part of it, towards the end it says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There's no question. There is no question about who the example is in that statement. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and he had just preached. And people had heard that God had raised from the dead. And now he stands before the lame man and said, you know the, the dead guy that came back to life by the power of God? It's in his name that I tell you to rise up and walk. You see, before the man responded to the command, before he could stand, before he could leap, before he could walk, Jesus Christ had already been put on grand display as the example of what was about to happen. Before anyone could see the power unleashed on the lame man, Jesus was given the credit. He was made the example. When we do anything, when we're called to do anything for God, we need to do it exemplifying, lifting up, showing Jesus Christ as the example, not us. See, Jesus to be the example of all we do. When people see the works of our hand, they need to see the example of Jesus. Anything done in the name of Jesus should show the example of Jesus. Because anything done in the name of Jesus is done by the virtue of Jesus' character. None of us, none of us were built to love our neighbor. None of us were built to love our neighbor. How do I know that? If we were built to love our neighbor, Jesus wouldn't have said it was one of two great commandments. The first, love our Lord God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We both know that we had to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior before we could fall in love with God. We must also Come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior before we can fall in love with our neighbor. If we fall in love with our neighbor, they need to see Jesus as the example. It says in verse 7 that he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up. The amazing thing, every time I read that, I'm just shocked. 
with one hand, Peter helps the man do something he's never been able to do in 40 years. Stand up. He didn't have to spit on him, hit him with a napkin, or have him buy a cloth, or pop him on the forehead. He just said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk, and gave him a hand. (laughs) And the man stood up. It says in verse 7, immediately, immediately, his feet and ankle bones were strengthened. Understand this. God doesn't do anything partway. He doesn't do anything partway. He does it completely, and he does it immediately. God is powerful. What was a certain man's response? Very quickly, in verse 8, it says that he leaped up, he stood up, and he walked up to the temple. What an awesome response to the presence of Jesus Christ. What an awesome response to an example of Jesus Christ. What an awesome response to the ministry of Jesus Christ through Peter and John. It says that he went into that temple and he went for one reason, praising God, it says at the end of verse 9. It says he was praising God. He went into the temple with Peter and John, praising God. He had never been able to walk into the temple. As a matter of fact, he had never been welcome in the temple. Because remember, lameness signified sin. Therefore, he was unclean and couldn't go into the temple. That's why they dropped him off at the gate. For the first time in 40 years, the man could stand up. For the first time in 40 years, he was able to go into the house of God. For the first time in 40 years, he was able to stand before an almighty God, leap up and down, and praise him. <laughs> Maybe we need a little leaping in our church. <laughs> Maybe we need to understand God has healed us, and we need to jump for joy. <laughs> but here's the beautiful thing in verse 9. It says, everybody saw him. Remember what I said about the lame man at the gate just a little while ago and all the people that passed him? They never saw him. They never cared to look at him. They ignored him. But now, now that God showed up, now that he'd been healed by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, they all saw him. Nobody was turning ahead. Nobody was scared to look at him. They were looking on him intently. Because here before there was a man, they knew, it says, they knew in verse 10, he had been the one. They had seen it with their own eyes. For 40 years, the man had been sitting there. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. He was lame and was sitting by the gate. And now he was jumping up and down for Jesus. And they saw it. They looked in his eyes and said, that's the man. That's the man. Hold on. How did this happen? They said, that's the man. What was the response? What, what happened to the, to the people? It tells us at the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 10 it says, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Not filled with wonder and amazement at the man. Not even filled with wonder and amazement at Peter and John. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It took God healing a lame man that they had ignored every day for 40 years for them to wonder about God and be amazed at God. It took the lame man being healed. The ones who daily went into the temple to worship God were now seeing God in a very different way. In a very different way. One who was unworthy in their sight, for their love 
unworthy in their sight for God's love had now found, had been found to be worthy in the sight of God. And it rocked their world. It turned their world upside down. We're out of time. Let me give you two takeaways. There's two takeaways for me as I read that part, and we'll pick up the rest of the story next week, what happens after this. But there's two takeaways. Never underestimate how seeing the people around you as God sees the people around you and being obedient to God and helping those people and being compassionate with them. Never underestimate how that changes people's view of your God. Never think that sometimes even the smallest of things, such as a, hey, how was your day? Could I hold this door for you? Could you use a hand with that? The smallest of acts of compassion in the name of Jesus Christ changes people's view of your God. Never underestimate that. Second takeaway, don't be the religious people in the church that God has to bring a miracle into your presence to prove to you who he is. You see, that bunch went to church religiously at every hour that they were required to be there to do their form of worship. But it wasn't until God did a miracle in their presence that they stopped with wonder and amazement at who this God was. Understand, the only miracle you need to see, church, is the miracle of your salvation through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Yeah, I would be amazed if I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead. I'd be amazed if I was in the presence of a leper who got healed. I would be amazed if a sudden storm was calmed at the hand of Jesus Christ. But I realize all of those things pale in comparison for the miracle God worked in my heart. Would he save me? Raising a dead body, calming a storm, healing a limb is nothing compared to the miracle he worked in my life. I don't need to see the lame man walk to know that God is God. And I hope you don't either. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.